I also want to mention that um, Elizabeth Smith, who has been on our prayer list, we learned uh, today, has passed away. Uh, you may have noticed, uh, and probably have, that she has been on our prayer list. I think she was a member at either Ridgedale or East Ridge, but I think a cousin of uh, Ridgedale, Ridgedale, okay, and a cousin related to you and to Shirley, related to Shirley, crown over, okay, and um, so we want to remember that family in our prayers. Also, we do, Brother Gary Brewer will have our closing prayer at the appropriate time. And an announcement I forgot, Mary Kay told me coming in, that uh, there's a Buick LaCrosse, a reddish color Buick LaCrosse, that has its lights on. Aren't you glad I remembered that now rather than at the close of services? <laughs> so maybe there's still time, unless it's one of those fancy ones that turns itself off. And if so, you would know that. So, uh, but um, if it doesn't, then I don't see anyone leaving, so it's either a fancy one or, or yeah, must be. Uh, appreciate Mary Kay calling that to, to our attention. We are studying the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, the Sermon on the Mount, the Constitution of Christianity, delivered by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we are in chapter 5 the earlier part of this three-chapter sermon from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in our last study, we ended with verse 20 of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The condemnation of the religious leaders of the day is seen in that verse, a condemnation that Jesus repeated on more than this one occasion. And the condemnation was because of their outward righteousness. But it was an outward righteousness that was unaccompanied by an inward devotion and motivation for righteousness. And it is verse 20 that leads to the discussion in verse 21 with which we begin tonight and which marks a contrast from what has preceded. Yet at the same time, it relates to the scribes and Pharisees' practice and also their interpretation of the law of Moses. And so Jesus, in verse 21 beginning, clarifies the nature of the law of Moses. And in clarifying the nature of the law of Moses, he shows it to be far more spiritual and far more heart-searching than the Jews supposed it to be. But he also lays the foundation for eternal principles that will govern the kingdom that he was to establish upon his death, burial, and resurrection and coming forth as he promised he would to establish his kingdom. Love for God. Love for God has always been the biblically supplied motive for obedience to the commands of God. And that has always been true in every dispensation of time. Now, in order to establish that fact, let's go back and simply look at a few examples under the law of Moses that show this to be the case. 
and that obedience to the law of Moses was not to be an outward compliance alone, but that that compliance with the law was to be motivated by love for God. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and if you look at verses 5 and 6, God says you shall not bow down to them, talking about uh, idols, you shall not bow, bow down to the heavenly bodies and so forth, you shall not worship anyone but the Lord God, obviously. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, now verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice, in giving the Decalogue to Moses, he does not say, showing mercy to thousands who keep my commandments. He says, showing mercy to thousands who what? Who love me and keep my commandments. Throughout the Decalogue and throughout the Old Testament as a whole, one will see very clearly a correlation and a very distinctive relationship between love and law. It was not just a matter of keeping the law, but it was a matter of being motivated by love to keep the law. The Pharisees and the scribes, many of the Jews, by the time Jesus came to this earth, had completely lost sight of that, as we shall see as we go further in our study tonight. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10 of Deuteronomy 5. Again, the same thing is said, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. A repetition of the Decalogue in the repetition of the law. Deuteronomy, the book means the second law. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This indeed, what we're about to read here was a part of what was called the Shema, the daily morning and evening service of the Jews. The daily morning and evening service of the Jews. Think about it. And it said what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. He goes on in verse 6. Then you turn one chapter over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And look at verses 7 through 9. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations, here it is again, with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then one other, Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments 
always. Passage after passage in the Old Testament clearly revealed that love to God has always been the motivating factor that God desires for us to serve from. That love that flows from gratitude. A love that flows from gratitude to God for His abundant blessings and for His mercy. It was true under the Old Covenant. Clearly we've established that from the few passages we have read. If it was true under the Old Covenant, then how much more under the New? How much more under the New Covenant? The New and Better Covenant. Does God desire that we serve Him from hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude for His love and His mercy and His blessings? And yet when Jesus came, under that old covenant still, the scribes and the Pharisees had clearly lost sight of the spiritual nature of the law of Moses with its motivations based upon love and gratitude. Therefore, in the passage we are studying tonight, Jesus corrected the erroneous view concerning the law and he made his teachings the abiding principles in his coming kingdom. And so you have a twofold situation here in terms of what Jesus is doing here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Oh yes, he's addressing some matters that pertain to the law of Moses under which he lived, the law which he fulfilled perfectly by living it perfectly and sinlessly. But in so doing, in making those corrections, he also laid the foundation for abiding principles in his kingdom, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And so this section of scripture that we're studying tonight, beginning here in verse 21 through verse 20. Six, especially, where we're looking at tonight, this portion of it, is not merely a correction of error, but it is the establishment of those lasting principles for the church, and we must not lose sight of that. With that in mind, then, look at what he says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now notice something very important at the very outset here. Jesus does not say, it is written, you shall not murder. He says, you have heard. He didn't say, it is written, thus showing that he was dealing with the scribes and Pharisees' interpretations, with, with their traditions and so on. He's not setting aside the law of Moses. The law of Moses said, you shall not murder, thou shalt not kill. But what Jesus is dealing with is the misinterpretation and the misapplication of that law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Thou shalt not kill clearly refers to the Decalogue. But what about the latter part? And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. This was apparently a scribal addition, an addition that the scribes had added, not a part of the original prohibition. But this is what you have heard was said. The law said you shall not murder. The scribes apparently added their addition to it, or if you do, you shall be in danger of the judgment. And what did that scribal addition do to that commandment? It weakened it. It weakened it. 
It actually served to weaken the command. You'll be in danger of the judgment if you kill. Now, the judgment, the judgment, according to the Jews, was a, a tribal court or a tribunal uh, before which people came for various things, and it had the, the power of capital punishment under the old law. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, you see this referred to in chapter 16 of Deuteronomy in verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. And so this latter part of verse 21 seems to refer to that judgment. But of course, it is clear that those who murder would obviously, uh, would obviously go before the eternal judge and be judged by the eternal judge as well. But this passage, as Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Where is God in this picture? He's not there. They left God out of the picture. If you murder, you're going to be in danger of going before this tribunal or this court, and you're going to be in danger of being condemned by them. Where is God in this picture? He's not there. And that was the problem Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees and their misapplication of the law. And that's why he says, you have heard that it was said by those of old, rather than saying, it is written. Because some of this was not written. It was added by tradition and by misinterpretation. Now, is that still happening today in the religious world? Anywhere? How about everywhere, isn't it? Tragically, that kind of, that kind of addition, that kind of tradition has crept into the religious practice of myriads of people throughout this world. And as Jesus is correcting it here in his day according to the law under which he lived, then we need to be correcting it in our day under the law under which we live, the New Testament. And as kindly and as compassionately as we can, we need to lead people away from the traditions of men and the vain worship that results from the injection of those traditions and lead them back to the pure teaching of the Word of God in emulation of what Jesus is doing here in his day with the Jews of his day. Now verse 22, here's the contrast. You have heard this from those of old, but I say to you, that's the contrast, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And so whoever, as the New King James renders it, whosoever, as the King James says, every one of you, as the American Standard says, literally then it is everyone who is angry without a cause. And therefore, it applies to every individual. It is a universal requirement for anyone who desires to be in the kingdom of God. It is applicable to anyone who desires to be in the kingdom. When, when you go back to verse 
20, you see that this verse is clearly tied to that verse. It's not a verse that applies only to Jews or to Christians because it deals with what? It deals with exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to do what? In order to enter the kingdom of God. And so if I am to exceed the scribes' righteousness and the Pharisees' righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, the church about which Jesus is speaking here while he at the same time corrects the misapplication of the law of Moses in his day, if it pertains to those who would enter the kingdom, it has to pertain to everyone, doesn't it? So he is saying, he's not saying the non-Christian out here can just lose it and be as angry as he wants and as hateful as he wants and as hurtful as he wants, but for the Jew and the Christian, no. No, that's not what he's saying. He says this applies to anyone and everyone who would desire to be acceptable to God and Christ in the kingdom of God and Christ, which is the church. As with fornication, over in verse 27 through verse 32, which we'll get to the Lord willing, Jesus here is dealing with a foundation law of social relationships. And in this case, he's dealing with the sacredness of an individual's life. An individual's life is sacred. Could we possibly believe that a non-Christian could be angry with his brother, with his fellow man, that is, without cause or express that anger in an abusive manner, without sinning? Well, certainly not. He would be sinning. And incidentally, brother here, as it is used, is the Jewish usage of it. Remember when Ananias came to Saul of Tarsus? And he said, Brother Saul, he wasn't saying you're a fellow Christian. He was saying you're a fellow Jew. And so that's the use here. But in a broad sense, it has to apply to all our fellow men because all of our fellow men are made in God's image. And in that sense, we're all brothers in that sense of the word. And so it applies to everyone. And he speaks of Reka. Whoever says Reka to his brother. Well, literally, that word means an empty-headed fellow, someone who is completely stupid, someone who is good for nothing. That's the meaning of it. And it's almost the same meaning as the word fool, which means someone who is morally worthless or contentious, a scoundrel, implying malicious intent as you use that term or either one of those terms. You are doing so maliciously. Your motivation is a malicious motivation. And that kind of judging has to be left to God. And we do not engage in that kind of judging. And so the words here that Jesus uses simply represent states of unrighteous anger and hostility for which man will give account. Our words are going to meet us in the judgment, not just our actions, but our words. Words that we have used for which we have not gained forgiveness are going to meet us again in the judgment. And so therefore, we need to be very careful. You know, Jesus used the word fool. In Matthew 23, 17, he used it. And uh, in James 2, 20, when James says, "Without thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead, that corresponds to the word Reka. But they're being used there in a judicial sense. 
not in a malicious sense, with malicious intent. And so a word can spring from righteous indignation or a word can spring from malicious anger. And the Bible makes it clear that a man may be justified in being angry with another man under certain circumstances. You look at Mark chapter 3, for example, and specifically at verse 5, and the context is where the man with the withered hand was about to be healed by Jesus. And this was something that was taking place on, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so they were watching him closely, his enemies were. These Jewish uh, enemies of Christ were watching him closely, verse 2 of Mark 3, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. In other words, they were just waiting for him to heal this man with a withered hand. What an attitude. Where's the thought about the man with a withered hand? Where's the compassion for the man with a withered hand? Where's the, where's the anticipation from these Jewish leaders that, you know, this, we believe this man Jesus is about to heal him. This man's hand's not going to be withered anymore. They could have cared, couldn't have cared less, obviously, about that situation. They just wanted to see Jesus do it so that they could entrap him, accuse him. That's what the scripture says. They watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him of healing on the Sabbath day, which there was obviously nothing wrong with it at all or Jesus would have never done it. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they kept silent. Now listen to verse 5 of Mark 3. So when he had looked around at them with anger, he looked around at these accusers, how? With anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Jesus was angry. He was angry. But it was a righteous anger, obviously, thus demonstrating that one can exhibit righteous anger. What about John 2.15? On one of two occasions where Jesus cleansed the temple, verse 15 of John 2, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. That's anger. That's anger accompanied by action. Who would say that Jesus sinned in so doing? He never committed a single sin, did he? So obviously, one can be angry without sinning. And so the Bible shows that justification for anger is certainly there in certain circumstances. Also, killing, for that matter, may be justified in certain circumstances. Paul said on one occasion, the book of Acts, before his accusers, he said, if I've done anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. He said, if I've done anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. The eternal principle for capital punishment is established long before any law of Moses was established under which capital punishment was used under the law of Moses. But in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. That's an eternal principle. 
establishing the right for capital punishment. And then Romans 13 tells us that the government does not bear the sword in vain, as an inspired writer tells us. And so, even killing can be justified under certain circumstances. Self-defense is something that the Bible upholds, even going back to the book of Exodus in chapter 21, and that principle is never denied, but rather reinforced. And so, in the new covenant. But, here is a caution. We better be sure that our anger is righteous indignation and not based on personal feelings or personal grudges. I have no right to be angry in any other way other than what is truly defined as righteous indignation. And I better make sure that my definition is in harmony with God's definition because I have no right to hold a grudge or, personal, or personal animosity toward anyone, let alone a brother and sister or sister in Christ. Now here the Lord seems to be showing progressive judgment here. The last of which involves the eternal punishment of hell in verse 22. And let me say that commentators differ on this point. Some say the phrase hell of fire or hell fire as the New King James renders it is literally, and it is literally, the Gehenna of fire. That's what the literal translation is and that it refers to the valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem and the punishment there where Jews at one time had actually offered their children to the false god Molech. Can you imagine offering their children burnt offerings to this false god in the valley of Tophet? But obviously, there is an eternal punishment. And there is a greater judge than these judges of Israel, the Sanhedrin, or any tribunal court. And that's the judge to, which we will, to whom we will eventually give account as Jesus Christ judges the world. In verse 23, he again shows an attitude that must be right in our worship to God in any dispensation. Notice what he says. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Practically translating that, it means if you had something that you knew someone had against you that was unsettled, you should have taken care of it this afternoon before you came here tonight. That's what he's saying, isn't he? He's saying that right relationships are absolutely crucial with our brethren, with our brothers and sisters. We must be right with our brethren to be right with our God. And that is clearly stated, not only here, but John, by inspiration, clearly reinforces that in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. When he says, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so if you have some ill will against a brother or a sister, the time to take care of it is before now. But please take care of it quickly. Because the word of God is clear. And our worship involves an examination of one's self. You know, in relation to partaking of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight indicates, let a man examine himself and then let him partake. That is, that he partakes worthily with his mind in gear and where it should be. And so if we reach the place of worship and realize that one has something against us, we are to act and take care of it. The commentator Adam Clark said, quote, If a tender, forgiving spirit was required even in a Jew when he approached God's altar with a bullock or a lamb, how much more necessary is this in a man who professes to be a follower of the Lamb of God? And Clark also said, quote, A religion, the very essence of which is love, cannot suffer at its altars a heart that is revengeful or uncharitable. If you have a heart that's revengeful or uncharitable, he says, a religion, the very essence of which is love, cannot suffer that at its altars. And that's in harmony with Scripture. Jesus says, then come and offer. Then come and offer. In other words, settle the difficulty. Do all in your power. Do everything that you can to have the matter settled. Settle the matter. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live at peace with all men, Paul wrote in Romans 12 and verse 18. And in verses 25 and 26, his advice here is settle out of court. Settle out of court. Listen to our last two verses tonight. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You can't find happiness in this life when you're filled with hatred. You can't be happy until making peace with God. Are you at peace with God tonight? You are if you've obeyed the gospel of Christ and are living in harmony with that gospel, then you have a peace that Paul describes as surpassing all understanding and a joy that is unspeakable. But if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, you cannot have that peace. And any peace that you experience is a false peace, a pseudo-peace, if you will. The peace that Jesus gives is the peace that comes from believing that he is the Christ, from repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John eight twenty four. Repent or perish, Luke thirteen three. Therefore, Belief alone cannot save you. You've got to repent or perish eternally. 
And then confess me, he said, before men, and I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And then he said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Very simple statement, isn't it? Absolutely crucial. Mark 16, 16. He who does not believe will be condemned. And then from that time forward, as you rise to walk in newness of life from that watery grave of baptism, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. And pattern your life after the constitution of Christianity, as the Sermon on the Mount is called, in every other inspired word, and it's all inspired in the New Testament, to which we are amenable and for which we will be accountable as we stand before God and Christ in judgment. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him, the words that I have spoken. The same will judge him in the last day. It's not a tribunal court about which we could be, should be concerned, although we always obviously want to keep the law of the land and be obedient to the law as good citizens. But our ultimate accounting will come when we stand before the great judge of mankind and give an account for the words and for the actions. And therefore, it behooves us to bring our words and our actions into harmony with his will. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it tonight. If you need to come home to your first love, as a wayward child, we plead with you to come home tonight. As we stand to sing, will you come? <laughs>